0: let me open us in a word of prayer and uh, we'll begin with a little bit of a review. Father, we give you thanks for your kindness to us, allowing us to meet here this evening. Lord, as we uh, look at your word and what it says, we pray that we might have understanding of it and that it would um, change us. And that we would see how you have worked in the world and some of the things that you say, some of the promises you make that are still in force today and that uh, they're not done away with and that you will uh, be faithful to them and that you will honor them. And so we ask for your blessing on our time. Be with Jim as he uh, isn't with us uh, with this illness that he has. We pray pray that uh, you'd strengthen his body and that He would uh, recover quickly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the first thing I need you to do is get something to write with and uh, need you to write something down. Okay. And um, so I have an assignment for you because um, our family's not going to be here next week. We have to go to a wedding on Friday, which means we got to leave on Thursday uh, to go to that wedding, but we'll be back for Sunday. So um, a family obligation. So um, anyway, so we're not going to meet. But here's my assignment for you. This is what I want you to do Instead of us uh, meeting. I want you to read the following passages. This is where you need to write this down. I want you to read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Number 2. I want you to read Genesis chapter 13. Verses 14 through 17. Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. Number three, I want you to read Genesis chapter 15, whole thing. It's only 21 verses, I think. But read the whole thing. Number four, I want you to read Genesis 17. Whole chapter, chapter seventeen. I think it's about twenty-seven verses or so, maybe thirty. Then I want you to read Genesis chapter eighteen, verses seventeen through nineteen. Genesis eighteen, verses seventeen through nineteen, and then lastly, Genesis chapter twenty-two. Verses 15 through 18. Genesis 22 verses 15 through 18. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to do this next week. So instead of meeting here, do this next week. This is your assignment. Read through these uh, passages. And as you do that, I want you to make a list Of all the promises that God makes in those passages. Look for things like where it says God says I will do something. I want you to look for those and I just want you to make a list and it'd be helpful in that list if you noted where you found a particular promise. So you're going to find several in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. So you just write them down and this is where I found it. So I want you to do that. I want you to look at that because all these passages deal with the Abrahamic covenant. And so that's why I want you to do it. It's connected to what we're doing. Okay, it's not just busy work. And hopefully what you'll see is a pattern developing here as you look at those. All right, so that's your assignment for next week. And uh, not, not too difficult, just reading and ob- observation, writing down those promises that God has made. So last week, I introduced this whole idea of covenants to us. Uh, we saw the importance of the covenants because they give us the broad framework for understanding our Bible and what God is doing in the world. And uh, we saw that covenants are a kind of agreement. And we see that covenants were made between God and men, but sometimes it's just between men. So Abraham will make a covenant with another uh, human being or something like that. We see that throughout the Bible. And uh, covenants are a very common part of that Old Testament patriarchal world. There's lots of covenants there. Now, we don't have those recorded in the Bible, but there's lots of covenants that happened back in that time. Um, I mentioned that uh, in order to focus our study, we are focused on the biblical covenants. That, that is those covenants that are specifically mentioned in the Bible. You now, I was doing a little bit of extra work uh, today Um, in the area of covenants and I was going through one uh, article that uh, someone had written and they were talking about God's covenant with Adam. Of course some people call that the Edenic covenant referring to Eden. Now one of the difficulties with calling this Adamic covenant or Edenic covenant is that the word covenant doesn't appear in Genesis 1 or 2. It doesn't appear there. And so we're, we're really being focused in our study and saying we're sticking with biblical covenants where the Bible calls something a covenant. All right? Um, and we saw that it's important. These biblical covenants are important because they help us to interpret other passages of the Bible correctly and really help us understand prophecy. These things that are yet to be fulfilled, but God says they're going to happen. And um, as we looked at this use of the word covenant in the Bible, we determined that when it... as it's used in the bible the term covenant refers to a legally binding contract or agreement between two parties and we looked at the words in the bible that are used of a covenant two words in the old testament and one word in the new testament and the last thing we looked at was this covenantal ceremony that helps us understand the making of covenants in the Bible. And, and that covenantal ceremony was called the suzerain vassal uh, treaty or ceremony, something like that. But we talked about that uh, in, a, in a good bit of detail last time. That's what we ended on. Now, to pick up in our notes from last week, we we'll to finish those up. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. And here we're going to see the unchanging nature of a covenant. The unchanging nature of a covenant. So, uh, not Genesis, Galatians, chapter 3, verse 15. Of course, this is Paul, and he is writing to a group of churches that he had planted on his first ministry trip. And this is what he writes to him. He says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, talking about the Mosaic law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So, in these verses, we see there's this unchanging uh, nature of a covenant. Paul begins by saying, I speak in the manner of men. So, he's going to use the language that people understand. He's going to use um, words and concepts that people would have been familiar with. And then he says though it is only a man's covenant and what he's going to do here is he's arguing from lesser to greater if it's true of a lesser thing it is also true of a greater thing if it's true of covenants that men make between each other this is also true of covenants that god uh, makes so what is true of man's covenants is also true of god's covenants And then he talks about this covenant. It says, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So once a covenant, whether it's a human covenant or a divine covenant, once it is confirmed, it cannot be added to or annulled. So once it's confirmed, it's going... Uh, to happen, and it's it's uh, clear here that this is talking about a covenant that has been ratified. So it's not just two people saying, "Well, I'm I think we ought to do this. I want I want to do this. I want a covenant with you for this." And the other person says, oh, "Okay." The idea here is. Um, you know, if you're buying a house, you got to go in and you got to sign on the dotted line. So you're ratifying the covenant when you do that. You're not just saying, I'm buying the house. You're actually going and you're doing it. And so once this happens with a covenant, it cannot be annulled or added to. And then Paul says that to abraham and his seed were the promises made so he's just just he gets done saying part one covenants that have been ratified or confirmed cannot be annulled or added to and then he kind of shifts gears a little bit it's in the same train of thought but he shifts gears a little bit because he's setting up for the last two verses and he says now abraham and his seed uh, to, to them were the promises made and then he clarifies what he means by the term seed he says he doesn't mean seeds as plural or many but one and to your seed and then paul specifies by saying who is Christ. So this is Jesus Christ. So the promises that were made to Abraham were made to Christ. And so we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant uh, this evening. At least we're going to start doing it. And when we read in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see these promises that were made to Abraham Paul's telling us here these promises weren't just made to Abraham they were made to the Messiah and and you know that means as long as Abraham or the Messiah live the covenants in force okay so it doesn't matter that Abraham's died has died and gone um, the Messiah lives and so the covenant is in force and, um, of course, we talked a little bit last week how this uh, verse, particularly verse 16, uh, really shows the importance of the words and even the form of the words in the Bible. Because Paul bases his argument that he's making here on the difference in what well, in English it's one letter, uh, in Greek it's two letters. Um, but he, he bases the whole point of his argument on a the difference between the form of one word, whether it's plural or singular. And that, that tells us that the words of the Bible matter, the very words of the Bible matter. It, it even tells us that the letters matter because you change a letter, you change the meaning of a word. And so he goes on to say in verse 17, And this I say that the law, talking about the Mosaic law, which was 400 years later, that comes 400 years after the promises were made to Abraham, 430 years later, the law cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ or in the Messiah that it should make the promise of no effect. So the law cannot take away the promises in the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't do away with those promises. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And so the inheritance that is spoken in the promises of God to Abraham... Um, these inheritance are all based on the fact that God made a promise. They're not made based on the law or keeping the law. And so what we see here is that as covenants are introduced along the way, these covenants cannot take away from previous covenants. They can't, they can't take away from them. The Mosaic Law... Which is a covenant that God made. It's the Mosaic covenant that God makes with the children of Israel. It cannot take away from the promises that God has already covenanted to Abraham. Okay, so we need to keep that in the back of our mind. All right, so also, I had planned to use, say something about the Noahic covenant here just as a kind of a model for covenants, but I'm not going to. Do that. Um, so I want to switch gears now and head right into the uh, Abrahamic covenant. So turn to Genesis. When it comes to the Abrahamic covenant, we kind of live in Genesis. And our first passage is chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Just verses one, uh, one through three. It says, now the Lord, that's Yahweh, has said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's a few things that are are standout things, that that they stand out to us in this passage. Number one, uh, the I will statements that we see here. Now, if you're glancing down there at your Bible, you'll notice right away there's a lot of these I will, I will here. So at the end of verse 1, it says, To a land that I will show you. Now, before we look at any others, who's the I? God. Who's the you? Abram. Abram is the you. To the land I will show you. Then he says, I will make you a great nation. That's number two. Number three. I will bless you. Number four. Maybe your Bible doesn't say I will here, but it says, I will make your name great. Okay? It says, I will bless you and make your name great. Well, it says... It literally says, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Next, it says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And, next, I will curse him who curses you. So you have six I will statements here. Six I will. And these I will statements are all referring to things that God is going to do for Abraham. He's gonna do these things. Um, We also would notice something that stands out in these three verses to us, is that a part of these uh, promises that God is making to Abraham are these uh, blessings that can be categorized in three ways. They can be personal blessings, national blessings, or universal blessings. Now, we're not going to try to categorize these right now. That's part of what we're going to do a little bit later. As you find the promises that God has made to Abraham in these passages you're going to look up next week, Uh, part of what we're going to do is try to categorize those into one of these three big groups, whether they're personal blessings, national blessings, or universal blessings and sometimes some of these blessings kind of bleed over into personal and national okay um, so be be aware of that you got these three categories of blessings of the covenant personal national and universal these blessings will be clarified and given more detail as more uh, revelation is given by god and so as we move through the book of genesis looking at the abrahamic covenant more revelation is given and so we'll see more clarification more explanation and more detail that is given this is this is pretty common for us as you understand the bible god is revealing his word bit by bit, piece by piece, over time. So when you remember that, you see that, like Abram, he doesn't know what Moses knew, right? Moses had a lot more revelation than Abram. Moses didn't know as much as Isaiah. Okay? Isaiah had more revelation than Moses. And of course, none of them had as much revelation as Paul. Paul had the whole Old Testament, and today we have more revelation than any of the prophets or apostles. Think about that. We have more revelation from God than any of those men had in their lifetimes, because we have our completed uh, Bible. Um, So now as you're looking at these three verses, I've got to couple interpretive questions I want to ask you. The first question I want to ask is, when was this statement made? The statement here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when was it made? And don't say in between chapter 11 and 13. Okay? Okay. When was it made? Yeah, look at the context there a little bit. A few verses before, a few verses after. Can anybody tell me when this statement's made? I'm not necessarily looking for, you know, an exact date and time. I'm just a relative chronological marker. Can you find it? Okay. So Something related to the death of Terah, who was Abram's father. Look at verse 4, chapter 12, verse 4. It says, so Abram departed as the Lord has spoken to him and, and Lot went with him. Okay, so that doesn't happen until after. God gives him this covenant, gives him these promises. So when, was the, when were the promises made? They were made before Abraham departed Haran for the land that God's going to show him. At least before. It very well could have been even earlier than that. Okay, but it's it's, it's at least before that point in time. It's before Abram leaves Haran that the Lord makes these promises to him. Um, As you look at the context here a little bit more, who is Abram with? Who do we know he's with? Lot's one. And his wife, Sarah, she's the other. We know he's with them. Okay? Now, the third question I have for you is, how old was Abram when he left Haran? 75. That's, so you're going to need to remember that. That's one of those things you need to mark in your Bible, put a highlight on, because the age of Abram becomes a key Thing in understanding how these statements of the Abrahamic covenant relate to one another. In this particular passage, he's 75 years old. Okay, so I think that we can, we can honestly presume that he's probably 75 years old when God gives him these promises. Okay, because he's 75 when he leaves Haran. Okay. Let's uh, let's go to our next passage, and that's in chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. Chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. And the Lord said to Abram, Now, I'm going to keep on referring to him as Abram over and over again. Even when I'm not reading, I'm going to refer to him as Abram until he gets his name changed, which will happen later. Then we'll call him Abraham. Okay? God calls him Abram. We should call him Abram. Same thing. So, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, Southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width. For I give it to you. So, this passage is specifically in relation to the land promise and the promises of descendants for Abram. And uh, later, we're going to get through the Abrahamic covenant and then we're going to look at the land covenant. And we'll, so, we'll have to come back and look at a few of these other passages to see the connection. But we see in this passage, these are the two specific areas that are being addressed. The land promise and the promises related to descendants. And so we know that this is connected to chapter 12, verse 1. um, Because this this is talking about the land that the Lord is going to show Abram. It says, look, look from here, look what I'm showing you, all the land which you see I give to you. So this is connected back to Genesis chapter 12. Abram is already in the land. He has already separated from his nephew Lot. The scope of the land which the Lord has given to Abram is described by all he can see. Look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. Everything you can see, I'm giving to you. But notice in verse 15 that this land is not just given to Abram, but it's also given to his descendants. It says in verse 15, For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever and we're going to find a little bit later on that um, identifying the exact descendants of Abram becomes a pretty important thing becomes very important actually not only in the old testament but in the new testament it's very important to identify who these descendants are because these descendants are the recipients of the promises That God has made to Abraham, particularly here, uh, the recipients of the land promise that God has made. And notice the number of Abram's descendants. It says that they're going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, it's written here and it uses a simile. Okay, A simile is what? It's a comparison using the word like or as. Okay, that's your grammar lesson. So it says in verse 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. And, and because there's a simile being used here, it indicates to us that there's not an exact number in mind. Uh, but rather, it's an expression that his descendants are going to be very numerous, even innumerable. Uh, because he goes on and say that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants would also be numbered. So you can't even number them. That's how great the number is going to be. They're going to be innumerable. We also see in verse 16 that these two promises of the land and of all these descendants have a future fulfillment. A future fulfillment. Notice at the beginning of verse 16 it says, and I will make. I will make. Uh, this word that's one word in Hebrew I will make is what they call it's in the perfect tense and um, even though it says I will now in English will is when you say I will do something what are you saying when will it happen if you say I will wash the car what are you when are you gonna wash the car in the future, sometime, it could be immediate future, could be way down the road if you're a procrastinator, um, but I will do it, it's the future. So we indicate future tense in English with will. However, the perfect tense of uh, Hebrew is, is more akin to expressing a completed action, Okay, a completed action rather than a future action. So, instead of I will make, maybe I make is a better way to do it. Because from God's mind, from God's perspective, this is a done deal. Now, there's actually, and uh, people who study Hebrew grammar and things like that, they actually have a term for this. They call it the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect, because this type of thing is done so often in prophecy where something is referred to as a completed action, but it's obviously not done yet. I mean, obviously, Abraham doesn't have any descendants yet, right? That's obvious. He has no descendants yet. But God speaks of him as having many descendants, so they call this the the, uh, prophetic uh, perfect because this is going to happen. It it is intensifying the certainty of this event. And that's why English says, I will. But I think it's just better to say, I make. I make, and it it elevates the certainty of this. Uh, Then we also see at the very end of the verse, it says, for I give it to you. I give it to you. And this word, I give, So I'm going to overload your Hebrew grammar uh, this evening. But the word I give is in the imperfect tense in Hebrew. And that indicates not only a future aspect, a future fulfillment, so it's more like I will give. But it also has the idea of an anytime expectation of the fulfillment. And so, for I will give it to you, and you can expect it to be fulfilled anytime. So, there, again, it's raising the certainty about when or about these things happening. And so, when we look at chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, we need to understand that there is a connection between this, this passage here and Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three and it's actually expanding on what was said in Genesis chapter 12. Remember Genesis chapter 12 it simply says um, get away from your home and go to a land I will show you. In Genesis chapter 13 God says look Look to the north, look to the south, look to the west. Look at all this land from where you're standing. This is yours. So you see it's adding clarification along the way. Now let's move on to another passage. Maybe I should stop. Anybody have any questions at this point? Any questions from chapter 12 or chapter 13? I should have stopped after chapter 12 and asked for questions. Any questions? Any questions? Yes, you would that would be correct. Even if we did even if we didn't know anything else, we would assume that from what it says here, that he has descendants because they will they will go on. Any other questions? Frank? You the questions the, the question okay. I'll try to do that. Of course everybody could just come and then Okay, let's move on. Genesis chapter 15. So this is a little bit longer. 21 verses. And this is the ceremony to confirm the covenant. This is the ceremony to confirm the covenant. Now remember, last week we talked about the suzerain vassal ceremony. We talked about that. And we even brought this passage up. But we're going to look at this whole passage and not just the end where that ceremony is at. So let's just start right in at verse 1. And notice we have God's pronouncement to Abram. God's pronouncement to Abram. It says in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. So we see that God's pronouncement came to Abram in a vision. So it wasn't just like he's walking along and he hears a voice, but it's in a vision. And this pronouncement calls for Abram to not be afraid. And why isn't he to be afraid? And maybe we could understand that as unsure. (laughs) You know, God has called him from his land, from his family, from his home, and taken him to a foreign place. But God says to Abram, I am your shield. That's the idea of protector. He's his protector. Even, actually, this word shield, when you look at the words associated with it, it has not only the idea of protector, but the idea of a protector with the view to delivering somebody, with the view towards deliverance. He's his protector. And then it says, he's his exceedingly great reward, exceedingly great reward. Uh, reward. Your reward shall be very great. It's another way to put it. Your reward shall be very great. So Abraham's reward will be great. The things that Abram will receive will be very great. And so this is God's pronouncements. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm your protector. And what I'm going to give you is going to be very, very great. And then as we go to verse two and three, there's a, Abraham questions God how he's going to do this. Okay. So God says, you're going to have a great reward. And Abraham says, would you mind explaining this to me? Now, keep in mind as we're reading this, we've already looked at Genesis chapter 12 and 13. Okay, we've already seen those. So the Lord has already been dealing with Abram even up to this point. So uh, verse 2 says, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So here's the recognition that Abram has that there's going to be a biological heir, but there is none. There is no biological heir, but one is needed because. The promises that God has been making to Abram along the way are promises that extend beyond his life to his descendants. So he's got to have descendants, but he doesn't have any descendants. And his heir is one not born in his house as Eleazar of Damascus, who's a servant of his, which was very common in the ancient Near East. If you had a rich man didn't have any children to pass along his wealth to, he would just name one of his servants as the heir. That's what Abraham, Abram, has done. And so as you get to verses 4 and 5, we see God's explanation, God's explanation to Abram. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. Referring to Eleazar. But one who will come out of your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now towards the heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So we see here at the end of the, uh, these two verses A second simile, a second simile, um, actually it's a metaphor, um, not a simile, a metaphor that's used to express the number of uh, Abram's descendants. In chapter 13, it compared his descendants to the dust of the earth, but here it compares them to the stars in heaven. So remember before in chapter 13, the Lord says, Abraham, your descendants are going to be dust of the earth. They're going to be so numerous, they'll be like the dust of the earth. Now here he says, look up, look up to the sky, look out into space, look at the stars, count them if you can. This is how numerous your descendants are going to be. And he says this after he has told Abram that he will have a descendant that will come from his own body. It's not going to be Eleazar. It's going to be a biological heir. More information, right? We're getting, we're, this is the progress of Revelation. We're getting more information that God is giving to Abram. Now, how old do we know Abram is? He's at least how old at this point? 75, 75 years old. So we got a couple guys in here that are around 75, generally. What would you do if you had a kid right now? (laughs) 75-year-old people are not built to take care of babies. You know, I'm not 75, but I'm feeling something like that. Not built to take care of babies. So Abram is, he's older than 75 at this point. But he's told, you're going to have a biological heir. You are going to produce an heir. And then we get to verse 6. Okay, really popular Verse, well-known verse, it says, "And he believed in the Lord; he believed in Yahweh, and he accounted it to him for righteousness." Now, there's two events, there's two actions that take place in this verse. Abram believed the Lord. One, it's action number one, event number one. Second. The Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. That's the second. He believed and he accounted. And this is a cause and effect relationship between these. The first action causes the second action. Right? The first action has to proceed uh, the second action. Uh, it leads to the second action. Now we need to take a little bit closer work, look at three words that are used here. He believed, he accounted, and then the word righteousness. So let's look at the word believed first. Aman, or man, however you want to say that. So, you know, this is your next part of your Hebrew lesson. A man, that means believe. Okay, so now you know every time you see a man, you'll remember the Hebrew word for believe. A man, believe. Okay, So this is the first place in the Old Testament that we have the word believe. First time it's recorded. So that also means the first time it's in the Bible. The basic sense of the word is to trust that something is true. To trust that something is true. So in this verse where it says, and he believed in the Lord... It was not that Abram was trusting in the Lord's existence. Um, It wasn't even that Abram was believing that the Lord was truth, that he was truth, but rather Abraham trusted in what the Lord had said to him. He believed what uh, the Lord said was true. That's what he believed. Now the Hebrew word here, the specific form of the Hebrew word, indicates two things to us. When it says he believed, it's in a, in a particular form. And it, it tells us two things about this belief. First, it indicates that Abram's faith had been ongoing. In other words, it didn't just start here. It wasn't all of a sudden that he believed. He has been believing all along this is not the first time that Abram trusted uh, the Lord another way to look at it is this word is sort of describing Abram as in a state of trusting the Lord he's characterized as believing in the Lord that's the first thing this word indicates to us the second thing it indicates to us is that the faith of Abram is what causes the Lord to take the action that he does. It's the faith of Abram that causes the Lord to take the action that he does. Okay, it's a what call they call it a causative form. So we see here that Abram believed. He trusted in what the Lord had said to him. He believed what the Lord had said to him is. True. Now hold a finger here in Genesis fifteen and flip back to Hebrews Chapter eleven. Hebrews Chapter eleven. Verse eight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. So the author of Hebrews writes, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would, re- which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. So right there we see that Abraham, of course, Hebrews is calling him Abraham, uh, which is our Abram in Genesis. That his faith did not all of a sudden start here in chapter 15 of Genesis. His faith goes all the way back uh, to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Okay, So this isn't just this all of a sudden, Abram starts to decide he's gonna trust what God says. He has been trusting, he is in a, this kind of position or state of trust. Okay, let's go back to Genesis now. Genesis chapter 15, I want us to look at our second word here. The second word is he accounted, accounted here. Um, And and this is the first time this word occurs in the Bible. And, uh, of course, it says, and he, and that refers to Yahweh or the Lord, accounted it to him, Abram. And so the Lord accounted it to Abram. He accounted his belief, his belief. Okay. So... uh, The accounting is connected to his belief here. Now the meaning of this word uh, account, or maybe your Bible says count, it's rendered in several different ways in various English translation. It can be the word reckon, it can be the word account, meant, considered, and so on. But when we look at this word, what we find is that it essentially is expressing this idea. It's essentially expressing the thinking process that concludes with the decision. So it's it's a thinking word. It's not not an accounting word. It's a thinking word. Okay? And so when it says God accounted, it's God considered it. Um, God concluded or something like that. So don't in the New Testament, sometimes we run into accounted, and it's actually talking about a uh, uh, accounting word, a financial word that you use for accounting. But this word is not like that. This is a thinking. This is a word that deals with the, the process of the mind. And so it says here that he accounted it. It's saying that the Lord considered Abraham or Abram's faith. And that consideration moved the Lord to this decision, this action that he takes. And that's connected to the next word we want to look at, and that's the word righteousness. The Hebrew word tzedek. it. You got to get that at the beginning. Tzedek. very common word in the Old Testament. The the foundational meaning of this word is to be straight. Okay? To be straight, not to be crooked. From that idea, to be straight, we get the, uh, the idea of it expressing what is the norm or what is the standard. Okay? This is the normal thing. This is the righteous thing this is the standard this is the righteous thing and and from that idea it then becomes into our common biblical use that it stands for a ethic uh uh, ethical or moral standard by which someone is judged so when you see this word righteousness or righteous you need to think we're talking about a standard Something that is righteous meets the standard. Okay, and the righteous thing is, is, you know, is the standard. So when our verse says, and he accounted it to him for righteousness, it means that the Lord taking into account or considering Abram's belief, thought of that belief as meeting his standard. He was going to make Abram meet his standard. So the position of Abram was a position of righteousness, meeting the standard that God had set for him. Now, this does not mean that everything Abram did at this point, everything that he did up to this point, or everything that he will do after this point was right according to God's standard. But that God, seeing Abram's faith, unilaterally moved to bring Abram into a position to be approved according to the standard that God had set. So by faith or because of his faith, Abram was right with God. So how do you get right with God? Well, Abram was right with God because he believed what God had said. And God says, this makes you right. It's accounted to you. I'm considering you as right because of this belief. So at this point in the narrative of Genesis, we see that Abram is right with God. God has considered his faith and declared Abram righteous. So that's a, pretty, that's a pretty big point right there. The text is making a big point. It, as It is at this place where Abram is considered righteous by God. He's been believing all the time since, since Genesis 12.1. God has made promises to him. But here it tells us, That he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him as righteousness. Now, let's go on to the next verse, verse 7. Because we see here in verse 7 the connection between what is happening here and Genesis 12. The historical event of Genesis 12. It says in verse 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord. So this is God speaking to Abram. I am the Lord Well, who's that? Who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. So that location, Ur of the Chaldeans, is mentioned all over the place at the end of Genesis chapter 11, right before chapter 12. All over the place, Ur of the Chaldeans. This is where Abram's from. And so God tells him back then, get out of that place. And here, God refers to himself as, I'm the one who told you to leave your home. This is me. I'm the one, and I'm going to give you this land to inherit. Now look at verse 8 real quick here. Here we see Abram's question of knowing. His question of knowing. says, he said, Lord God, how shall I know I will inherit it? How shall I know I will inherit? The Lord just says I'm the one who told you to leave your home and come to this land, and I'm giving this land to you to inherit it. And Abram's response is, "How do I know? How do? In other words, how do I know this is true? Um, how do you? How do I know that I'm going to inherit or I'm going to possess this land? Now." How does that harmonize with verse 6? How how does verse 8 and verse 6 go together? Verse 6, Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him as righteousness. Verse 8, how do I know I will inherit it? So you got to think about what's going on here, right? You got to think about what's happening. So you think about it. And the next time we come back, we'll look at it. Okay. We'll look at it in a little bit more detail and I'll give you the answer. But you think, I want you to think about it for the next uh, two weeks <laughs> or 10 days or whatever it is. Think about, and, and just, you're going to be reading this passage again anyway. Read it. You can figure it out. You can figure it out. Just follow what it says. It just says it right there. Just follow what it says. Thinking about what you already know about Abram and the promises that God has made and how Abram, how the Lord has worked with Abram from chapter 12 through 13, now chapter 15. So everything we've talked about here, think about all that, and you, can answer, you will be able to answer this question. How do you harmonize verse 6 and verse 8? How can it say Abram trusted Believed in the Lord. And then in verse 8, seems like he's not believing anymore. Hat hat. You can fit, you'll figure it out. You'll see the answer in the text. Well, that's all we got time for this evening. You see how I did that? You know, that's what they say you're supposed to do when you teach. You're supposed to leave people with, you know, this question hanging over them so they want to come back, Right? So uh, I I guess I get an A on pedagogy there, right? (laughs) We got a teacher in the back. She knows what I'm talking about. So let me pray and um, we'll be done for the evening. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Give us safety as we go away. We're so thankful that uh, you are a God who keeps your promises and that the promises you make, you will keep. And so we rely upon that uh, because you are true. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.